Welcome to Leaders Upgraded, the place where people who want to upgrade and fast track their career, their life and their leadership journey tend to gather. I am your host, Tanvi Gautam, and I shall be speaking to the top 10% of the world's leading authors, CEOs and thinkers to bring you some of the best and brilliant ideas to fast track your way to success. Would you like an upgrade? Let's do this. I'm talking with John Acuff today. And John is the New York Times bestselling author of five books, including Quitter, Closing the Gap Between Your Day Job and Your Dream Job, Punch Fear in the Face, Escape Average, and Do Work That Matters, and his book, Do Over. I am so delighted and excited to welcome John to the show. I think Seth Godin said it best when he said, Do Over is the best career book ever written, and I have to second that. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much for saying that. I appreciate you having me. You know, I've been reading your book, and the one thing that struck me as, as I was reading it was that you talk about so many things around careers and the ups and downs that we're going to get into in a minute, but you do it with such an amazing sense of humor and uh, about it almost. I'm so curious, where does that come from? Most of us, when we talk about our careers not going the way we want them to, etc., we are so, you know, heavy and dreary and dragging our feet about it. But you seem to have developed this, you know, lightness of touch, which, which makes it such an interesting read. Where does that come from? I think it comes from my dad and my family. Growing up, humor was a currency in our house. Uh-huh. I'm not even, I'm not the funniest person in my family, actually. My youngest brother, Bennett, is a lawyer and he's world funnier than me. So growing up, we always valued it. My dad would take me to comedy clubs when I was in high school and he still to this day calls me to say, you know, did you see that line that Jon Stewart said? And so I always valued humor growing up and then I started to realize that it's a great way to say something hard in an easy way. And there's a comedian, Chris Rock, who's a social commentator more than anything. And he said, there's some things people won't listen to unless they're laughing at the same time. So I really started to write with this sense of how dare I write a book about having an exciting career or exciting life in a boring way. So why don't, you know, why don't I have some fun? Why don't I have some humor with it? Because I just think that's more enjoyable than kind of traditional sterile kind of boring business books. I think old school leadership said, if I, share, if I share my weaknesses, people won't trust my strengths. And I think new school leadership says, if I pretend I don't have weaknesses, people won't trust my strengths. And so I like to use humor to share authentically, like, hey, here's something I messed up. Like I could have done this so much better. And I think you should try it this way so that you don't get this same bump and bruise I got. Yeah, I, I can see that the book was written with a real spirit of generosity. I appreciate your share some of the backstage stories of your own career. I think a lot of us go through life as though we were a perfect Facebook update, uh, which we're not. Uh, and so, you know, I appreciate that, that kind of this. And you're right. I think that the leaders that are in organizations nowadays are expected to be more human than anything else. I mean, we are not looking for that, you know, superhero who's going to come and save the day. I think that's a very important shift that's happening. So I want to get back to the book and talk about a very interesting idea you have in there. And an idea that I, I hold very dear to my heart, which is that the whole discussion on having a meaningful 
is our own responsibility, not that of the company, not that of the manager, and certainly not that of the HR department, so to speak. But a lot of times, as you say in the book, we trick ourselves into believing that it's someone else's uh, job to make our work more enjoyable or easier for us. But actually, it's us who has uh, agency that. But why did you arrive at that conclusion? How did you end up making that shift from saying, no one else is going to come and do this for me. I just have to do it for myself. Was it a turning point? There was some evolution. What you to that recognition? say it was, you know, I spent years and years thinking the opposite. I don't know if, I don't think everyone's entitled, but I think we do have a culture that sometimes leans toward that. You know, we even just, I think about the phone, like you practice with your phone being taught that you deserve things instantly 12 hours a day. So of course, when you come to your career, you think, okay, I deserve this to happen right away or with less effort or it's somebody else's responsibility. For me, I went through seasons of, of thinking that way, but then it really came to a head when after seeing 17 years working for big corporations like Home Depot and Bose and, and great organizations, I started to work for myself. And I realized that the only one really holding me back was me. I no longer had a quote unquote boss. In that I didn't go to an office, I didn't have a manager. So all these people that I had, if they only knew what I was capable of, or they, you know, someday, like if they weren't holding me back, they didn't exist anymore. And it was this kind of cold water reality gasp of, wait a second, you know, we we sometimes it's popular to say the gatekeepers are gone, that the the internet, social media. Technology has eliminated the gatekeepers, and that's true to a degree, but it hasn't eliminated the number one gatekeeper, which is you. And so once you realize that, it's overwhelming at first, and it should be, but it's a gift eventually because you realize, wait a second, if that's true, then I have not only the responsibility, but the opportunity, and I get to, I get to change these things, and, and there's a lot of fun and joy in that. And when you do that and you work at a company, it changes your relationship with your boss completely because then they're not you know, an opponent or then you're not coming and going, okay, company, let's see what you'll do for me today. Um, and then you're not guessing how your week is going to be. When you have the mentality that it's somebody else's job, you start Monday morning by going, okay, let's see how other people give, what kind of week other people give me this week. It could be a good one, could be a bad one, but I'm not responsible versus going, it's Monday. I have the gift of this day and I'm going to do the most of it possible. And it's got to be me because nobody else is going to do it. Yeah. I, you know, there's that line that you say, you're more than you think and it's going to be harder than you think. And I, I thought that those two statements juxtaposed together uh, are such a reality check. Because most people actually think quite the opposite. They, they don't realize the amazing resources that they have within themselves. And they underestimate the work it's going to take. So, you know, while you have the opportunity to make your work more meaningful, uh, one should not make the assumption that it's something that happens easily. It still does take work. And you introduce this really interesting idea in the book of the career savings account right and you talk about four different situations that career savings account could come into play 
And I think those four situations, some of which are positive, some of which are negative, some of which are voluntary and some of which are involuntary, uh, cover the entire spectrum of the type of changes people can see and experience in their careers. So I thought let's let's begin by talking a little bit about what's the career savings account, how mix up the savings account, and then you could get into how the savings account might apply to the the four um, situations that you brought up, the positive as well as the negative, voluntary as well as involuntary. So walk us, if you will, through this idea of a savings account. What does it entail? So the, the idea came from realizing that a lot of times in career, people kind of spend 18 years getting ready for college. They get, they get ready for this thing, and then they graduate, and the next thing they get ready for is death or retirement. There's this 40-year gap where they just kind of accept that a job is just a job. So nine out of 10 people feel disengaged from the thing they're going to do for 40 years, 40 to 60 hours a week. And so I started to think, you know, how do we actually invest in career and who's good at that and what similarities do they have? What do they have that I don't have? What are the pieces you need? And so that's where the, the career savings account was born from, was understanding, okay, to have a meaningful career, you need these four items. You need relationships plus skills plus character times hustle. That's a career savings account. And you need all four. And what's fun about that is none of your listeners right now are going, wow, that's a, what a unique idea. I didn't know skills mattered. You know, nobody is blown away by the idea of like second relationships matter. It's just that most of us haven't applied all four of them together. And here's an example of why you need all four. Say you have great skills, great relationships, great hustle, but your character takes a hit, you become Tiger Woods. And it kills me that golf commentators right now go, it's weird that he's not good at golf. Is it that weird, really? Because part of his life, a bomb exploded in, and that impacted the other parts of his life. Is there a chance for redemption and a second chance? Of course there is. But you're crazy if you think that character won't impact your skills, won't impact your relationships, won't impact your hustle. So that's what the career savings account is, is figuring out how do you deliberately invest in those things? How do they work together? Like, I, you know, I always say like relationships can get you the first gig. Somebody will take a shot on you. A friend will connect you. They might get you the first audition, the first gig, the first job interview. But when you show up, you better have skills because skills get you the second one. Because even if you love your best friend, say your best friend opened a salon, if she was terrible at cutting hair, you wouldn't go back a second time because they didn't have the skills. And so our relationships need our skills and our skills need our hustle. And so once you start to see, okay, there's something I can invest in and it's hopeful and it does take hard work, you can start to apply it to these situations that you have to navigate that all of us are going to experience as we go through our careers. So what I'm hearing you say is that there is a certain synergy between these four and that they gather in a particular manner and, and in certain situations, one element might take prominence versus the other, but you do need all four. Am I right? Now, I, I want to unpack this idea of hustle a little bit because I think that it's a very common word. It's entered into our lexicon and it's being thrown around all over the place and people are kind of making of it uh, what they want. But you use hustle in a very specific manner and and frankly hustle is actually more common in entrepreneurial circles than it is in corporate circles at the moment although it's making its way there 
unpack of, uh, unpack that for us a little bit. What do you mean when you talk about hustle? Yeah, the word hustle is kind of been. I don't know. I don't like how it's represented on the internet because it sounds it's everybody uses it and they use it to indicate like, you know, every day I'm hustling and they assign that to like, they say like, you know, Abraham Lincoln said that quote and they put it over a picture of a, of a Lamborghini and you go that he didn't say that Rick Ross, the rapper said that, you know? And so it sounds like an ax body spray flavor, like this aggressive, see like cheesy, kind of used car salesman kind of approach. But the way I look at hustle is that hustle is an act of focus, not frenzy. Like we sometimes think hustle means working crazy hours, becoming a workaholic, like just going nuts. But it's it's really more about figuring out what are the things I'm supposed to focus on. Like hustle can be an act of subtraction, not just addition. We sometimes, you know, you hear the word hustle and you go, Okay, I got there's 10 other things I need to put on my to do list. I would argue that it's both ways. There's some things you're supposed to say no to and some things you're supposed to say yes to. And hustle kind of becomes the fuel for that. It's it's really, you know, imagine to use a really simple metaphor. Imagine if you had an amazing car, this beautiful car that was just perfect and you had no gasoline, like even the best car in the world becomes just, you know, a heavy paperweight at that point. And hustle helps you kind of get from where you are to where you want to go. Now, skills kind of help you refine that. That's why you need skills. Skills are the gas can that helps you put the gas in the right place where sometimes people look at hustle and they go, I'll just spray the car with gasoline and this wild kind of gush and light it on fire. And that's bright and beautiful for a minute, but then you're left burnt out. And so what I try to do is I want long-term sustainable hustle. Um, your, your company your team is not served by your by your burnout. And so that's how I look at hustle. It's a little counterintuitive, but I'm not I'm not trying to help you with this week. I'm trying to help you with this career and there's a difference. I agree, I agree. And you know, I think it's very important that we brought that up because I think somewhere the conversation um is uh, tilting to the other end of the scale where we keep hearing things like just say yes. And, you know, uh, don't think about it. If an opportunity comes, just jump on it. I understand what they're trying to say there. But without enough, you know, cognizance to how that is fitting in with what is your view uh, about where you want to go and the brand you want to create for yourself, it's it's not the most productive. And, and a lot of people are burning themselves out just by saying yes, because they feel that, you know, it's like that entire, I'm not sure whether you are familiar with that entire Sheryl Sandberg lean-in conversation where, you know, some people have talked about if you lean into your career too far, you actually just tip and fall over. Um, I completely I completely agree. And the, the idea of just say yes to everything is a really lazy way to look at it too. But it gives you the thought of like, I'm hustling, I'm working hard. No, saying yes to the wrong things is a terrible is a terrible way to build a business. It's a terrible way to run an organization. There's a lot of things you're supposed to say no to. And it would be easier as an author if I could say, say yes to everything that bats its eye at you. Or it'd be easier if I could say, just say no to everything. But it's not. Like, that's the tension. And it's a good tension to live in and to go, okay, this thing, this opportunity is outside my space. I mean, Steve Jobs certainly said no to a lot of things when he returned to Apple he eliminated a lot of things and said, we're not going to say yes to every product. We're not going to say yes to every idea. We're not going to say yes to every button. We're going to, you know, we're going to simplify and say no to a lot of things. And so 
that's how I look at hustle. But yeah, it is. I don't know. You see people online or you see leaders that that say you've got to say yes to everything, but you certainly don't. There's a lot of things you're not supposed to chase. Mm. It all comes down to a lot of clarity of um, vision on on where do you think uh, you're you're headed. You know, we, we were, you were talking about the idea of quotes, and I found a quote online. Find out if this is really you. I think it might. It isn't just doing the things you love all the time. Hustle is doing the things you don't enjoy sometimes to earn the right to do the things you love. Is that you, John? I did say that, and I think that the the lesson there for me was just sometimes when we talk about finding our purpose or finding our passion or our calling or all these kind of popular catchphrases that are entering the, the vocabulary. I think that we're going to stumble upon a perfect job where we only do the things we love 100% of the time. And everyone who's ever run a business or ever run a team knows that there are a lot of things you'll do that you might not list on your, you know, as your dream, but they're the, they're the kind of the admission price to getting to do the things that really matter. And so you have to, you know, not just begrudgingly, you have to find the joy in those things too. And, and kind of, I talk about building a grit list in, in do-over where, you know, you might not love returning emails. Like email might be your least favorite thing, but the reality is the world has decided opportunities come via email. Relationships are built via email. Um, chances to grow your business are built via email and your ability to navigate it. So you might need to set up some boundaries on how you receive it and when you reply and all of that. There's healthy things to do. But you you might never love email, but you need to see the value of it and you need to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So let's talk about the, the four things um, uh, where we would end up drawing upon the career savings account. And I want to talk first about the positive, actually. So you talk of, you know, two types of situations, positive situations we might find ourselves in. The first one might be a voluntary one or where we might find that we have suddenly made a career jump. Um, and the second might be an involuntary one where there is now a career opportunity. So could you could you talk a little bit about both these, the career jump and the career opportunity? What would be the prominent thing that we would draw upon in the career savings account when we are in either of these situations? Sure. Well, when you when you jump, and a jump can come in a lot of different sizes, um, it can be something that's, you know, live and you move to another country or you move to another city for a job. Um, it can be something that's small. You subscribe to a new podcast, you read a new book, you take an online class, you, you know, it's something that's positive and voluntary where you're daring to do something new. Um, and when you jump with, with your career, what you need the most, the investment of the four, remember it's relationships plus skills plus character times hustle. The one you need the most when you jump is your character. And a big part of the reason you need that then is that when you jump, some of those other things might not be in place yet. Um, think about if I moved to Singapore, uh, my relationships wouldn't be in place yet. If I took a new job and, you know, my skills might not be perfect yet. But my character, when you jump, you jump with who you are. You jump with your heart, your approach to life, your empathy, your generosity, who you are as a person. And so that's why when you jump, you need that. Now, the other one, an opportunity, is simply when something positive that's unexpected happens, where you get a chance to really 
experience something you hadn't planned where, and it could be you're at an event and you meet somebody in the hall and they have an opportunity you never would have thought to pursue or something online. There's a connection, something surprises you in a positive way. And what you need the most there is your hustle because this tiny window has opened this tiny opportunity and you get to with your hard work, with your effort, with your fuel, with your, your drive, grow that opportunity. And it's growing something that you might not ex- have expected, but upon seeing it, upon recognizing it and realizing it, you really give it your all. So those are the two things you, you need the most in those moments. Now, as you said earlier, there is a synergy. So certainly when you get an opportunity, you need skills. Certainly when you jump, there'll be, you know, it's easier to jump if you have some relational equity already built up. Um, so it's not that they're, they're all mingled together, but you're right in that one kind of takes the forefront. And comes that, you know, and says, okay, if you're going to jump, here's what you need to, you know, think about character and bravery. Um, Think about courage. Like it takes tremendous courage to jump. It takes tremendous patience to jump, you know, because you don't want to jump at the wrong thing. And you have to say, is this my ego encouraging this jump or is this the best opportunity? And let me talk with a friend. Now you've got the relationship side of things. Let me ask a friend, am I missing something? Is this my ego that's forcing this, but it's not what's best for me and I need to have more character in this moment? So they all do work together, but there are always one that kind of becomes the star of that moment. Mm -hmm. I I kind of think of it when I think of the career savings account and the prominence part of it. uh, If your career was a picture that you took on your cell phone, right, uh, then I would almost think of these four elements as filters. Um, and sometimes you apply one filter and the picture becomes more beautiful. And then another time you might, might apply another filter. So it's it's not like the, the elements of the picture are not important, but that the filter just accentuates it or helps bring out the best of the situation that you might. So let's now talk about the other two uh, parts of the quadrant. And I'll make sure we, we put a picture of the quadrant in the show notes so that people can refer to it. Um, is that there could be a... a, a voluntary negative situation so which is which is what you call the career ceiling where people feel that okay you know I've kind of reached the top of where I had to and I'm kind of stagnating and I don't know you know ceiling I can't seem to break through it etc and then there is the negative involuntary right which is an unfortunate situation that a lot of people have to deal with where you experience some sort of a career bump you might you know get laid off or something of that sort so in the what would we what's the filter right what's the what are the things we're going to draw upon if we were in a career ceiling or when we were in the career bump yeah when you when you hit a ceiling it's it's that you got stuck and it might be that you climbed to the top of a career ladder faster than you thought it might be that you're just in the wrong position or maybe you maybe you don't have the ability to see that it's the right position through through some voluntary action you're doing you got stuck. And sometimes organizations get stuck. You know, I read a great article in the New York Times that asked, why didn't Kodak create Instagram? Why didn't Polaroid create Instagram? And they didn't because what happens is when you start a company or an organization, there's risk and innovation and you have a very open hand. But then if it goes well, you move from innovation mode to protection mode and you start to protect the thing you've already built and you get stuck. You hit a ceiling. And so when you hit a ceiling, what you need the most are your skills. And skills are the hammer that helps you break through a ceiling. And the way I look at it is that it's impossible to get stuck somewhere old if you keep learning something new. So I I think about the graphic designer I met, uh, my favorite examples, who said, you know, John, I recognized that if I didn't learn how to design for the Internet, 
I was going to become a dinosaur. I was going to get stuck. The industry was changing and I saw that coming and I knew if I wanted to still be part of it and not get stuck, I needed to learn some new skills. I had to learn new coding languages. I had to plug into an online design community. I had to find out new tools and tricks and applications. And so he did that to prevent himself from getting stuck. And so he learned skills. And when you recognize that, you see that a ceiling moment is actually a laboratory. It's a great chance for you to really work hard on a skill. You know, the jump moments feel awesome. They're great. It's fun for like the first day. If any of your listeners have ever had a blog, starting a blog feels awesome on day one. You get Google Analytics and you say, people from Singapore are reading my blog and I'm in Alabama. Who knew? And it's really exciting. But every day after that is you working on the skill and putting in the time and the effort. And so that's how you get unstuck when you experience what's called a bump, um, which is a negative involuntary moment where maybe you lose your job. Maybe another company bought your company and eliminated your role. Maybe it's something as simple as the manager who loved you and recruited you when you joined that new company left a month after you got there and you're suddenly vulnerable or your team shifted and they said, you know, and you and you knew how to work with this one team and all of a sudden they shifted everything and your job feels brand new and hard to figure out and you have this bump moment. What you need in those moments are your relationships. Um, and the, the best way to understand who your friends are is to go through a negative, unexpected moment. And what you learn is that the people you thought would show up don't show up sometimes. And the people you didn't even know knew you existed show up out of nowhere to lock arms with you. And so the strength of your relationships really comes into effect when you go through a bump. And that can be, you know, a coworker that carries you in a project. That can be a friend who anonymously puts money in your mailbox because you lost your job. It's the strength of your relationships that help you get through bump moments. Yeah. And actually, I have to confess, of all the chapters in the book, the one that I enjoyed most was this entire conversation on relationships. So I do want to spend just a little bit more time there. And there's one very interesting uh, in there, okay, which talks about this concept of enemies um, or foes at work, right? Um, where you talk about how, you know, we, we feel we have advocates at work and we have friends at work and then we think we have foes at work. But that we have to be very careful about who we even classify as, as, as our foe because are they, are they really a foe or, or, or are, they, are they just an idiot because that's their, they are just being uh, just as uh, to everybody else at work as well. Then there was something else you said, which I think was a very uh, nuanced observation that I'm going to let you walk our listeners through, which was this bit about, you know, how sometimes we're looking for foes where none exist. This ends up happening when we start stepping out of our comfort zone and, and taking risks or doing something that requires courage. I know that you captured that beautifully. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that was a difficult thing for me to admit. And that's, you know, the way I like to write is from the trenches. So this isn't 20 years later, I've learned something. This is, wow, I'm in the middle of this too. And so the concept there is, you're right, when you step out of your comfort zone, sometimes you look for people to confirm the fears you have inside. So if you feel like you're a bad leader, if you can find one, one other person or two other people to say that, then you have consensus and you don't have to do the hard work of being a better leader. You can say, see, I knew it. I'm terrible. I'll go right back to my comfort zone. I knew I wasn't good. And so sometimes 
if we're honest, we search for people that will confirm the fears we have inside about ourselves. And we'll, we'll find those people. And not everybody has a, a business where they get one-star reviews from customers or, or they can find people like that. But we tend to hold on to criticism, especially if it's criticism that will kind of help us avoid some hard work. And so there's times where you have to be honest and go, okay, am I on the search for foes right now? Or is this a legitimate situation I need to fix and let go of? Um, and again, it gets back to what we started this conversation about the responsibility. Am I creating foes because I'm afraid of something else? Okay. okay, and let me be honest about that because it's my responsibility to not turn that person into a foe or not go interview people that will tell me I'm not good enough because secretly I already, th I already think that inside anyway. And if they'll confirm it, then I don't have to do the thing I'm afraid of. You know, this, just this insight, and the book is full of so many insights, just this insight is so powerful because of so many people who, who when they recognize they need to step out of that comfort zone and it takes a lot of courage to do that, they do and then you're right they use it as a crutch they use it as 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 evidence and you know you it's a very funny story that you share in there about you know how we treat online criticism versus how we treat criticism that you know people in real life are giving us um, do you remember that story you talk about dragon 723 or something saying something online versus yeah exactly right? yeah why did you share that with the listeners that's very true I mean, that's exactly what we all do when we, we encounter criticism. So tell us about that difference. Yeah, and that's fairly new. The concept that strangers can comment on your life easily or that a lot of strangers can is a, is a fairly new thing. And so how I kind of try to, to relate to it is that, you know, if, if somebody online criticizes you about your job or they criticize you about what you do or they don't like your podcast or whatever it is that you're creating that's in a public space – that would be like if somebody in real life walked into your office at work and you never met them, they didn't work there, and they just walked in, somehow they got in the building, and they said, hey, I've never met you, but you're terrible. You're horrible at your job. You would look up from your desk and go, how did you get in here? Like, and you don't know what I do for a living. You don't know anything about me. Like, you saw my name plate on the outside of the door. That's all you know about me. Like, You'd never accept criticism from that person. You'd go, wow, what kind of lunatic goes around just popping into people's offices, yelling negative things at them? Like, what a crazy person. And then you'd go about your day. But what happens is because of the way the Internet's set up, because of social media, we sometimes think strangers who criticize us know us. And so they drop off this grenade and we kind of sit with it and we think, wow, they're right I need to think about this. I need to work on this. And, and just because it happened on the internet doesn't mean you should, you should believe it or accept it. Yeah. And this is a very important conversation because as, as leaders start leading more in the social space, the sphere of criticism in online spaces, etc., is something that can really hold themselves back. No matter when we ask uh, people in companies to, to show their thought leadership online or to blog or to put themselves out there, it's not easy to do. And when this sort of criticism comes your way, then you can tend to personalize it to an extent that can, you know, send you in a bit of a tizzy, which you really have to to watch out against. So that, that I find that a very interesting uh, conversation. And that entire chapter, you know, your, the way you talk about hanging out with people who are like lobsters or, you know, don't burn, don't burn a bridge, even if it is a digital bridge. 
Or another one of my favorite was just always remember even stupid people get promoted. So, so you know, you have to watch out for the relationships. But I'm not going to ask you to explain it because I want people to go pick up the book and I want them to, to read what this is all about. And, um, you know, as I said at the start of the podcast, it's such a charming read. That's the word that comes to my mind. It's such a charming read because you take us in the trenches, uh, share your, your insights. And it's all changed with this, uh, you know, generous dose of dose of humor, which which makes it so much easier to read and say, you know what, I I, I think that I, I know what I want to do with my career and how I can have greater ownership. So I just want to thank you for writing the book, John. Thank you so much for saying that. I I, I love the the questions you've asked and. It's it's always fun when when somebody has insight that they add to the conversation, and so for me as an author, it, that's that's really enjoyable because it gives me a chance to kind of dance back through, you know, the ideas and just every I don't know anyone who doesn't have a difficult coworker, you know, we all like welcome to the human race. You're you're going to, and and again, I think you kicked it off perfectly by saying, hey, if it's our responsibility, what do we do with that? And uh, one of my one of my favorite things about the book was getting to say the thing about what if you have a horrible boss, because some some of your your you know listeners have horrible bosses and there's things you can do when you bump into that, you know, versus just going, I hate my boss. It was a terrible week and I'm not going to do anything. But next week on Friday, I'm going to say I hate my boss. It was a terrible week. I'm not going to do anything. And then, you know how fast life moves. You look up a year later and the job you meant to stay at for a month or six months, you're still there. And there's this precious thing, you know, about about our lives that I don't want us to miss. And that's we get to change things and, you know, how we work can change a boss. And, and ultimately, the, the thing I say is that at the end of every day, every horrible boss is saying the same thing. And they're saying, I dare you to get a better job. I dare you. That's a very, very uh Powerful way of framing it, right? Yeah. I want to end with a quote that I found in your book. I I have taken it to heart, and I hope the listeners take it to heart, which is that the only thing more exhausting chasing a dream is running away from one. So I, I, I hope that your book and your work inspires a lot of people around the world to face their dreams because that's what ultimately matters. Thank you for being on the show, John. Thank you for having me today. I had a lot of fun. But thanks for tuning in to the podcast. Use this episode of Leaders Upgraded. But wait, your journey is just getting started. Go to www.leadersupgraded.com for more insights, more inspiration, more tools to continue the journey. And if you have someone who you would like to nominate for the podcast or a particular topic you'd like us to cover, then also visit www.leadersupgraded.com and let us know. If you like this episode, please do share it. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And I look forward to continued upgrades with you. Take care.